You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. So I have this working theory that I put to a test this week. And like uh, we all do in 2023 with working theories, the first place we go is where? Oh, man. Google. Like, we used to go to, to uh, academic books. We used to go to, you know, sources that were... Now we just go to Google. Like, and my working theory I put to the test this, this week is this. I typed in in Google, the most romantic movies. And pushed enter. And then just like, you know how it is. There's just like over and over. So I weighed through different, uh, what I thought were reputable sites, uh, ranking the most romantic movies of all time. And it became clear that kind of a common consensus was this movie kept coming to the forefront as considered the most romantic movie of all time. Uh, Let's see. Do you recognize it? Anybody? How many of you knew what that was? You're better than me, right? I've not seen it. So I, I Wikipedia or Google Casablanca and begin to read. Now, I'm not watching the movie and the characters and their personalities and the on-screen chemistry. I didn't have any of that. I just read the plot. Oh, my goodness. It's not super optimal, okay? Like a married woman is in love with another man and they're involved. And I'm like, the most romantic movie of all time? And I'm like, my working theory is is kind of accurate, right? This is how we define romance in our culture. And then I thought, well, half or three-fourths of the crowd Sunday is not going to even know what this movie is like I do. So what's a modern movie, right? And so it became clear that there's this whole cult uh, kind of phenomenon with this movie. And so if I splash this up there, does everybody know what that one is? The Notebook. All right. How many of you have seen that? Yeah. No dude in the house raised their hand. <laughs> and so I began to read about The Notebook, and I realized, oh, my goodness. You know what? This, they probably, I read about their on-screen chemistry. It was just uh, fireworks and all this. And yet, honestly, the story is like, wow, that's not super good. Like she's engaged to one man and is involved with her old flame. And I'm like, yes, this is how I feel about how our culture understands what in the world love is and what love looks like and what love does. It's kind of like the junk drawer in your kitchen, right? Everybody have one of those? That drawer that Man, every odd and end that you have or, you know, you know, companies coming over and you're rushing around and there's bills on the, the counter and you're like, what do I do with it? So you just throw it in there and it's in there with the scissors and, you know, the aspirin or the Tylenol. And then you go to slide it back out and you're like, oh, my goodness. It's just junk. It's everything. And it's hard to find anything because there's so much stuff. And I began to think, you know what? My working definition of how we understand love in our culture is like a junk drawer. 
I mean, it's here, there, and everywhere. There's odds and ends. How we understand love is crazy. Even what we consider the most romantic movies of our era and time are pretty sordid, right? They're like, that's not optimal, and that's, that's actually painful for people, and that's, right? And you know what I'm talking about. You know how people understand love today. Love is like just telling somebody, you would never tell somebody they're doing something wrong. That's loving. Like it would be unloving to tell somebody they're, right? We just all over the place. A junk drawer kind of definition to love. You know, the season of Advent is built around these four words, these pillars of what it means that Christ came. And we've talked about these every service as we've started. We've thought about hope. And we should understand hope in our world through what Jesus did coming into our world. He defines hope. He defines peace. He defines joy. And today we're thinking about, this morning we're thinking about that word love. And so I want to make a run here for a few minutes on Christmas Eve morning at trying to continue to help us to maybe have a better working definition of what love looks like. Because you and I are in a culture that love is crazy. It's, it means something different for everybody. And, you know, we even use it weirdly. Like I can say in the same sentence, I love my wife and I love tacos. You know, like, whoa, how, how do we, there's, there's categories and there's, right? And so let's just allow what the Word of God says about Christ coming into our world, and this is love incarnated. What does it mean? And, and, and I want to just walk through this for a moment this morning or a few moments today. John chapter 1, John writes about Jesus coming into the world in this way. He said, the Word... The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When he did this, we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father and he was full of grace and truth. John here is making an important declaration. He uses this, this word from their culture and their time, Logos. Uh, they looked at the word logos and they thought the logos is the most powerful force in the universe. It's the creative power behind the universe. It's the source of all wisdom. There's a logos out there. It's the source of all wisdom, knowledge, intelligence. It's the source of all power. That's how they would use this word. And John on purpose says the logos, Jesus is the logos. He is the creative power. He is the source of everything. He is wisdom, knowledge, intelligence. And he's saying that instead of how you've thought of logos and this impersonal power, this maybe floating principle of reason, that actually the logos is a person. And he begins to help us understand what it means to love. Because this, he says, the one who is the source of all things, who is the creator, decided to leave his place of privilege and everything, and he entered into his own creation. John is saying that this Logos is a person who became a man. He becomes a personal God. The word became is such a, a cool word. The word became. 
Now to think about God, God does not change. He is unchanging. He's immutable. He's, he is just God. He's pure being, and he doesn't become anything because he doesn't need to become anything. He's not changing. He's not growing. He's not getting in more information. He's not at any point incomplete. And yet, though, he chooses God to become a man. And in so doing, we begin to grab a hold of what the incarnation of God truly means. It has made, he made his dwelling. It's, he put up a tent. He became one of us. In other words, John is trying to help us understand that Advent looks like, and this is what love looks like, it's not some distant, benevolent deity who chose to to kind of help us out when we need it. It was the kind of get in the middle of it and become one of us kind of activity. First John, John in his epistle would say this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. You know, in the ancient world, the myths, the stories, the legends about gods and who they worshipped. Normally, it was the gods who had made human slaves to the gods' desires and, and all this. And the gods were preliminarily takers. And you did what you needed to appease them if you wanted any kind of goodness. And the advent of Jesus Christ is in stark contrast to the gods of this world, the deities, the understanding of God in this world. The God is not a taker, but he is a giver. And he comes in the most humble, personal, and relatable way. I mean, this God chooses to come into his creation to become flesh and dwell among us, live among us, and he does so in a way that is so ordinary that even the name that he chooses to carry is, like, common. See, the Greek gods, would, it was Zeus, right? Anybody met a Zeus? I better not ask that. There might be a Zeus out there. But normally, we don't call ourselves or name our kids Zeus, right? It's just kind of one of those. But God himself, in Jesus Christ, comes to this earth. And what do you want to call me? What do I want to be called? I'm going to choose the name that in any class role, there's probably two or three of you. Jesus. It's common. It's like, how much more do you want to know how much I identify with you? I have completely emptied myself of who I was to become just like Wow. This is beginning to give us a working definition of love. A God who becomes touchable, approachable, reachable. A God who walked among us not with a title de designation, but with just a simple name. For 33 years, he feels everything that you and I feel. He knows what it is to feel weak, to grow weary. He gets colds. He has body odor. Anybody? You ever think of Jesus that way? You should. That's how much he identifies with you and I. His feelings 
got hurt, his feet got tired, his head aches. And so this begins to help us understand what does love look like? Well, it's God becoming exactly like us, to so identify with us, to, to know what it is to be human. That's what love looks like. But as I began to, to, to think about and study into the story again, anew and afresh this year, I realized that there's more to this idea of what he's trying to help us understand about love. Um, you know, oftentimes when we talk about the shepherds and their role in the story, every preacher that I've ever known, and myself included, will talk about the fact that isn't, isn't it amazing that the first people who heard the good news of Jesus' birth were shepherds because they were the marginalized in society. They were criminals. They were humble. They were... Um, casts off. And isn't this an amazing reflection of God's uh, message to hum humanity that God cares about all of us? And you know what? I believe that is absolutely true. That's absolutely a part of the story that we need to grab a hold of. But I begin to realize that actually the role of shepherds in the story, coming from the fields, being there on that night, being in Luke chapter 2, is way more than just, hey, God is here and come for everyone. But the role of shepherd is instrumental and central to what God is wanting us to understand about himself. I began to read the Old Testament writings about the one who would come, the Messiah. And I began to understand that uh, how God wanted us to understand who he would be is in this idea of a shepherd. I mean, think about these words. In Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to read three, four verses to you. The book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. For the first 39 chapters, this prophet from God who's called to, to instruct the people and to help them understand what's going on. I mean, for 39 chapters, it's not a pleasant read. It's just judgment, judgment, judgment. You've messed up, and you've messed up, and you're bad, and you're bad, and you're going to feel it, and that's what it is. It's like, not only is the world around you, they've messed up, but you've messed up, and this is what's going to happen, and God's not happy about it, right? 39 chapters. Like, oh man, this, is, this stinks. I'm not finishing this book. And then there's a turn in chapter 40. For the rest of the book, it's like, you've messed up. This wasn't right. This wasn't how it was intended to be. You should feel guilt and shame. All those things are a part of coming out of being created in the image of God in this right and perfect world and what God uh, desires and what it makes sense should happen. You've messed up. But yet God has decided to do something different than what would be normal. Instead of giving us what we deserve, instead of starting over with something new, instead of just scratching it and forgetting it, God decides out of his love to do something about it. And Isaiah writes, okay, for 39 chapters, it's like, oh my goodness, please stop. I get it. I messed up. He begins with these words. Comfort. Powerful words. Comfort my people, says your God. And as you read down through that 
chapter, he talks about the fact that he's going to come and there's going to be John the Baptist, that there's going to be a forerunner who's going to talk about the hope that's going to come into the world. And, and he says this, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. It's not good right now, but I want you to go up and I want you to go, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, don't be afraid, say to the towns of Z Judah, here is your God. Okay? It's not unlike that night uh, on the hillside where angels do this. They shout the good news. That The word here is gospel, good news. Share the good news. And, and, and Isaiah is saying, listen, this is what's coming. The angels are going to declare. I want you to declare it for you my, my people, what I'm going to do with you, but actually I'm talking about even something greater and what happens on that night Christ is born is this same kind of idea. It's continuing that, that theme that God is going to do something about our broken, lost world. And in this message, he shares a couple things about himself that I want us to grab a hold of. Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Like, Guys, what you got to understand is God's going to do something about it. He's going to break into our world. The Messiah is coming. And in that, he is the king. He is the Christ. And the Christ is the one who sets the world back in order. That in Christ's coming to earth, it's not like, oh, that's, that's just a really touchy, nice, feel-good little story. And like, oh, wow, the babe in a manger. And like, oh, he can forgive my sins. No, when Christ comes, that babe in a manger is the coming Messiah King who is beginning to reverse the curse of all mankind. Like, he hid his power in the cradle, but his power is not diminished in any way. Like Isaiah saying, you got to understand who Jesus is. Like he is the coming king. And the mission of the king is to take what has been broken and lost and reverse it. But this is also who this one is who's in the manger. He says he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And this is what I want us to grab a hold of. That Isaiah is saying the Messiah is one who's not only going to come in and be one of us. Wow. How much love is that? To so identify with your creation that you become one of us. That in his coming, the way that he's going to live for us should begin to give us a working definition of what love looks like. It's this role of what a shepherd does. I mean, he talks about here a shepherd who 
gathers and carries them close and leads. Jesus would say it this way, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And here's what I want to just remind you of for just a few more moments. That Jesus' incarnation is love. But what does that look like? How does it act? We have so many scattered understandings of love. And yet the prophet said that the one who comes is one who is like a shepherd. And Jesus himself, all through the New Testament, he's known as the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. And I want to remind you of what the weight of those statements, what that means for us to continue to understand love. Can I talk to you for a minute about sheep? How many of you like sheep? I'm not a big fan. I kind of avoid the sheep. But this is what I understand. This is what we know about sheep. To put it nicely, I would say this. Sheep are simple. Simple's the word today. We're not going to use stupid or dumb. We're going to say simple. We're going to be very kind. But sheep are simple. They're so simple that they're really, they're just so difficult to train. They're that simple. I, I can almost guarantee you, unless it was some really wacky circus, you've not went to the circus and watched a sheep show. You know why? Because, man, you might train them for a few seconds and then they just forget. Like, you can train dogs. You can even train lions and tigers. Sheep, you just can't. They just don't remember very well. They're, they're not very trainable. Sheep are dependent. They're vulnerable. They are very dependent. I mean, when's the last time you watched on Nat Geo a documentary on wild sheep? I'll tell you what wild sheep are. They're dead sheep. They can't, they can't survive. Like, they're dependent. They're vulnerable. They're they don't have good eyesight. They don't hear well. They struggle even to find water on their own. Uh, they don't clean themselves up very well. And even if they could, they don't. Sounds like teenagers. Just kidding. Just kidding. Sheep are so anxious that, um, man, if, they, if they're not fed well, they won't lay down and rest. They'll just fret. Uh, you know, in their little world, they, they do have they squabbles. And if they're fighting or at odds with one another, they won't lay down and rest. They're just so anxious and tore up and they fret. They have to feel safe 
or they will not sleep. And you know what sleep deprivation does. Honestly, if you put sheep in a pasture, in one pasture, and you let them graze, they, they would eat all the grass, and they wouldn't leave that area. They'd just stay there, and then they'd begin to eat each other's excrement, and then they would die. They just don't know enough to get out of their own way almost. They're just not, they're simple. They roll over, they can't roll back over, you got to help them. Um, they're just ripe for all kinds of disease. Um, you know, with flies, obviously, everywhere, and um, obviously where sheep are, um, it wouldn't be uncommon sometimes for sheep, for a fly to fly up into their nose, and the fly not be able to find its way back out, and so it's in there, and the sheep getting so crazy with that that they begin to bang their head against a wall trying to get it out until if, until. It's not, seriously, not uncommon for a sheep to just kill himself by banging his head against a wall. They get lost easy. That's why Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to his own way. They just, they just don't have a good GPS. In fact, they get lost so easy that it was not uncommon in that day, especially for one that would stray often, that the best and most loving thing to do was for the shepherd, he would break the legs of the sheep. And then he would bind it up and he would carry that sheep over his shoulder while its legs healed to teach it not to stray. And he would, the sheep would learn, be conditioned so much that it would not stray. They're fearful they're easily frightened. They become easily confused. They've been known to plunge blindly off a cliff following one another, one after another. They're defenseless. <laughs> They're defenseless against the rushing walls of water that come down the valley from a sudden heavy rainfall. Robbers, they can't defend themselves against a human being. Wolves, they had no defense. They're slow, so they couldn't escape predators. They don't, they're, not com, they're not camouflaged well. They don't really hide in the grass or in the woods very well. They have no weapons for defense, such as claws or sharp hooves or powerful jaws. They're stubborn animals. There's stories of sheep that will walk into two rocks, get lodged, and they just stand there. They don't know enough to walk back out and put it in reverse. You say, why are you talking about sheep? This is so weird. I don't care about sheep. That's really interesting, but what does that have to do with me? Of all the animals in the world that God has created, the one that he wanted us to understand, we are like the sheep. I know, Merry Christmas, right? You're simple, and you're defenseless, and you're frightened. You stink. And you don't even clean up after yourself. But it's true. There's a reason. That truly, in the world that we live in, with our fallen nature, 
we become like sheep. We become captive to our own desires, our own things. We can't get out of our own way. We get easily frightened. Honestly, we are no match or defense for the evil that exists in this world. And as, as far as we've advanced in so many ways, we still all inherently know that we are defenseless. We just are. As intellectually bright as someone can be, they still starve for the things of companionship, love, and those things can be taken from us and destroy our life just like that. We really are defenseless. I mean, it's amazing. We build amazing things and we do things out of the wisdom God's given to us. And yet, in an act of God, it can all be destroyed. You ever watch coverage of a hurricane? A tsunami? I mean, we're, I mean we've come a long way, but we're still at the mercy. That's why insurance companies write in the clause, or an act of God. We can cover everything but an act of God. I mean, I've been told, I've read this, that one lightning bolt that comes down has enough electricity in it to power Los Angeles for 100 years. Even as much as we've done, we're truly still fragile and frail. And that might sound terrible, except for the fact that God says he desires to be our shepherd. And what a shepherd does is all those things I've read about with sheep, they have a tendency or prone to do. The shepherd guides, protects provides, takes care of. This is a working definition of love. Not only did God become man and make his dwelling among us, he so chooses then to, as a shepherd does with his sheep, to go to whatever length it is to take care of the sheep. His words, I am the good shepherd, and I will even lay down my life for the sheep. You and I both know he did that. He's good to his word. And as sheep, he is a shepherd that we can absolutely trust. I would say this maybe today, the love of the season is the love of a shepherd. That's what God's trying to communicate through the prophet Isaiah. The one who's coming, he's like a shepherd, a good shepherd who takes care of his sheep. We so desperately need that. In fact, I would say this, you are loved more than you can ever imagine. That, my friends, is a working definition of love. A God who becomes us so that he can guide, provide, protect his sheep, his people. 
And so this morning, I invite you to stand. I want to end this way. You might not even need to look at the screens, but can we finish Christmas Eve morning talking about love by reading together the words that God himself penned about us and him? It's those words of the 23rd Psalm. Would you read these together with me? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, as we understand you coming into this world is what love looks like, we see that this love is like the love of a shepherd. And a shepherd does everything to take care of their sheep. They will go to whatever lengths to provide, to protect, to guide them to good water, to good pasture, to keep them safe and healthy and at rest. This is love. May we understand this is who you are. And may we trust in you completely. Thank you for becoming one of us and for living in such this way that you ultimately went to the greatest length. You laid down your life for the sheep. Thank you. We praise you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.